I wanna talk about brotherhood because we got an issue with brotherhood. Christian men have an issue with this thing. Because I have traveled the world and I have spoken to men all over the planet and I can tell you that men often learn one way and I've said it already, it's through pain. Some of the most predominant ministries in churches today minister to men's pain. Divorce recovery, celebrate recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, divorce care, you name it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every one of those ministries are available in churches in ad nauseum. And they're there because, well, when men hurt, they wanna get that pain fixed. But like I said today, they just want the pain fixed. And then they try to fix it by behavior. They don't actually try to fix the problem. But I know men, and I can tell you this, if men submit themselves to the process of dealing with that pain and attend one of those things that often has very good content, they'll come out of those experiences only saying two things. They will say, man, why did I wait so long to open the Bible and why did I wait so long to find brothers? They usually will not make a comment about the content itself. It's that they found Bible and brotherhood in that pain and they will make this statement that makes me wanna slap them across the face. If I had this beforehand, I might have avoided all these problems. <laughs> and fellas, we've got to stop learning reactively. We've got to take proactive steps in our spiritual life and not just always move from hurting to healthy, but healthy to thriving in our life. Amen. And that's where I want you to move tonight. I want you to make a commitment tonight that you're going to seek out another brother and the Bible together with other men. And I wanna challenge you to this, to the point of guilt and shame. <laughs> because guilt and shame work sometimes. It does, in moderate levels appropriately. So I'm gonna be very appropriate tonight and I just wanna encourage you around this topic, challenge you around this topic to make a commitment to find those things. So what I'm gonna to do tonight is I'm gonna read various texts for you that I think will be very convicting and maybe enlightening around this topic, and I'm gonna give you four things that you can do to proactively build brotherhood in your life. Four things you can proactively do to build brotherhood into your life, beginning tonight. Here's number one. You must begin by doing this. You must silence the voice of self-disqualification. You must silence the voice of self-disqualification. Because the number one problem that men have today, Christian men have today, if you were to ask me and interview me, I would give you this answer. It's the voice of self-disqualification. It's the voice that keeps you on the bench and out of the game. It's a voice of shame and guilt and regret from the past that say, I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. And I'm not able to speak intelligibly about God's word. 
I don't have enough gifts. I've got all this garbage going on in my life. My marriage is failing. I'm too much of a sinner, which are not the voices of God. They are the voices of the enemy who's trying to keep you in a life of passivity because he knows, as Omar said earlier, action even when inappropriate is a lesson learned. Because sometimes any kind of action is learning another way to not do something till you can find the right kind of action that leads to momentum in your spiritual life. And that is a beautiful thing. Number one, you have to silence the voice of self-disqualification. So let me read these verses for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. It reads, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So what's going on in this text right here? It's a very fascinating moment, okay? So here's context, because context matters when you're reading God's word. Here's the context here. Uh, uh, Paul has taken a number of missionary trips across Asia. He's taken a small trip, and then he takes another little bit of larger trip, and then a third really big trip. In the first trip, he stopped at a town called Lystra. In this town, Paul was stoned. Not Portland stoned. (laughs) Not Colorado stoned. Not every state stoned. It just... He was struck with rocks, and they attempted to kill him. They then dragged him out of town. It was kind of a funny occasion, but even there, he did ministry that was somewhat somewhat successful. So on his second missionary journey, he comes back through there, and he meets a grandmother and a mother who have a boy who doesn't have a father at home. He's a little bit of a mama's boy, and his name is Timothy. And Timothy is taken up by Paul, and Paul is educated, he's smart, he's bold, he's going to be his father in the faith. And Paul and Timothy take a liking to each other, and then Timothy leaves to go on these journeys and travel with Paul. Now, the story continues to unfold. Paul plants all these churches, and one of the big churches that he plants is in Ephesus. It is the epicenter of wealth in his day. It's in this beautiful, beautiful place along the ocean. It was picturesque. It, it is where the wealthiest of the wealthy lived in their day. They vacationed in Ephesus. It had a stadium outside, of course, that still exists today if you ever visit this area. It's where Paul preached, and the first time he came there, and this big riot ensued. But there were a few believers in the faith that kind of came along, and they planted a church there. It was one of the most famous places in that world at the time, because on the top of the hill, there was one of the nine wonders of the world. That was a political joke. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the temple of Artemis, Diana, on the top of the hill. So this is a beautiful, worshipped, wealthy home for the rich and famous. Paul preaches there, leads a few to the faith, and plants a church. But here's the problem. 
The church begins to waver in Paul's absence. Paul spent two years, which is one of the longest stints he spent anywhere in this church, and after he leaves, it begins to waver. Woke ideology makes its way into the church. <laughs> Happens sometimes, doesn't it? Paul's concerned about it because Ephesus sits in a very strategic place in the ancient world, and he doesn't want to lose this church, but he can't get there. So he finds his young protege, and he tells him to go. I just want you to know that after I've read the history of this church, I wouldn't sign up to do that job. But Paul can't get there, and by the way, never does get there. So he needs Timothy to go. But note this, Timothy is everything Paul is not. Timothy is a mama's boy, he's uneducated, he's barely been circumcised, he had a Gentile father, he wasn't from the riches of the rich, and he's being asked to go into a metropolis in a church that's overrun with opinionated women, ask them, build eldership, find strategic men, and turn this church right side up. Sounds like a job for, well, not Timothy. I wouldn't look at his resume, but the guy's resume I would look at is someone highly educated, bold, good at debate, been through it all, was a Pharisee of Pharisee, Roman of Romans, powerful, been tried and tested. I would take Paul. I would hire him in a split second, but Timothy, absolutely not. Because guess what? He doesn't fit the resume. But Paul believed he did. And guess what? I guarantee you this Timothy heard the voice of self-disqualification. And you know how I know it? In the very first verses, Paul says this. Remember the prophecies prayed over you when you were sent. Because back in Lystra, before they left, the church laid their hands on them and sent them out. And there was a word spoken over Paul and Timothy in that moment that Paul is entreating him and commanding him to remember so that he will not believe the lies of the enemy that says, you're too timid, you're too young, you're a guy, you're untrained, sit on the bench, don't get in the game, and you can't make a difference in this church. And yet we know that Timothy did go, and it did result in a turnaround of a very strategic church. You know, fellows, I really truly believe that we hear the voice of self-disqualification all the time. We do. In these little ways in our life that causes us to set in spiritual passivity and keeps us from living out spiritual action. What happened in Genesis isn't just indicative of Adam. What happened in Genesis is indicative of all men. And the reason why God gave us that story, and it's repeat, been repeated down through time, 
is so that we would move from apathy to action and get in the spiritual game. But you're never going to get in the spiritual game and you're never gonna find brothers if you keep sitting on the bench and don't actually get up from it. Let me give you an example from my own life, all right? True story. About 15 years ago, I was trying to figure out a way to have an influence on my three young children at the time. And every one of my children at the time had one of these uh, devices in their pocket. Every one of them. As much as I was irritated by the fact that we paid for them, I knew that they were influencing them. And so as a father, I was trying to figure out a way that I could have an impact on their life. So what did I, what did I decide to do? Well, I talked it over with my wife and I decided I was gonna write 30 days of devotionals that I was gonna text to them that included a little verse and a thought in hopes of impacting their life. I thought it was a fantastic idea, to be quite honest. I was like, man, I'm gonna be father of the year after this one, right? And no kidding, I, I told my wife about it, we kind of prayed about it, and I set it up back when you could very first set up a group text on an iPhone. And uh, I called it Dad's Daily Devo, and I included my daughter and my two boys, and at the time, my daughter's boyfriend, who's now her husband, and my wife. So there are five people on this text, not including me, all right? And I start sending them out every day, every morning, and I'm sending them out. And it goes on for about five or 10 or 15 days. After the 15th day of sending it out, I realized that no one had responded to me. There was only the blue text, not the white text. And I was like, I'm constantly sending these things out. I'm like, I'm not getting a response. I mean, I didn't get anything. I didn't even get one of these. I didn't get one of these. I get one of these. I got nothing, you know? I got nothing from these guys. And I was like, what's going on? I started to question myself. Day 16 came, day 17 came. Now I'm looking for a response because I can't unsee what I have now seen. And I'm kind of wanting to know, is it working? I got to day 20, still nothing. Not even my wife said anything to me. I'm like, honey, come on, say something. Nothing. Day 25, still nothing. And all of a sudden, in that moment of self-disqualification, I said to myself, I'm done on day 30. Because now I started to feel like a failure as a father, right? So I made my way through my commitments. Sent day 26 anyway, angry. 27, bitter, you know? 28, sad. 29, this is almost over. Day 30, thank God. I'm a failure as a father again. Day 31 came. Day 31. I get a text in the morning. My daughter says, Dad, where's our Devo? I had not written one. So I said back in a sarcastic tone, did not know you read them. Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Mm, you know. And then she says back to me, dad, exclamation point. We all read them and I am sharing them with my friends. Send me my Devo. <laughs> Very quickly, the voice of self-disqualification started to fade, and then my boys chimed in and said, 
yeah, we share them with our friends too. And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> One question mark. And my son said, no. We share them all the time. I had no idea. One week after that, I then, now I'm sending day 31 and 32 and 33. One week after that, one of the kids that my daughter was sending these texts to called me, the dad of that daughter. Have no idea who this guy is. Still don't know his name today, but I was so taken back from the phone call that went just like this. Hey Vince, you don't know me, but your daughter has been sending my daughter texts and I read it today and I need to let you know that I think you should send this out to fathers because fathers need to read this. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I said, tell me what particularly struck you. He says, well, it's hard raising kids and you're helping me understand how through my daughter's struggles that your daughter's trying to help her with. I said, oh. <laughs> so then I started sending that devotional, not just out to my family, I started sending it out to men. The next part is not about me. I wanna be very careful about what I'm about to say. But this next part is not about me. I started sending those devotionals out those devotionals go to 100,000 men every day. No, wait, don't, don't clap, don't clap about it. Don't clap about it, because I'm not done. Those devotionals turned into one of the biggest publishing contracts that David C. Cook has ever written to a single author. That's me. And those devotionals are reaching men all over the planet because I chose to reject the voice of self-disqualification. That is what God doesn't just want to do through me. That's what God wants to do through you. But you have to silence the voice. I believe that God is stirring in you a voice, and he's speaking to you. But as Omar said earlier, if you don't act on the voice when it speaks, and you stay on the bench and you never get in the game, you never know the plenty and the riches of what God may want to do with you in your life. And guess what? A lot of those voices are heard in brotherhood from other men. They're heard from other men who want to encourage you through the challenges that you're going through in your life. And by the way, if you're not in that community with other men, you don't hear those voices. Timothy needed Paul to say, remember the prophecies previously preached over you that pushed him to get off the bench and into the game and silence the voice of self-disqualification. Because of that one brother in his life who spoke the truth to him, 
All those other voices went away. And then he acted one step at a time. And fellas, if you're not in brotherhood with other men, Christian men, godly men, men that are ahead of you and behind you in this life, you are not going to hear that spiritual reinforcement that you need. Because guess what? I need it too. Just as much as I need to give it to others. And that's how that whole thing started. A little idea that a dad had in hopes of influencing his five people in his life has turned into so much more, so much more than just a simple five. Number one, you need to silence the voice of self-disqualification. Number two is this. You need to take initiative and get a brother. (laughs) I can't make you do that. I wish I could. I wish I could shackle you to a man for a while in hopes that you would actually build brotherhood in your life. And I know that I can't make you do it, but I promise you, if you do it, it will pour out blessings to you. Here's Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Acts 11, 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, which becomes the epicenter of the church in the northern part of uh, the, the ancient world. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. In my opinion, if you asked me who is the most influential person in the New Testament, hands down, Barnabas. Barnabas. First church, if you remember him, he's the guy who sold all he had and brought it to the church. He was that guy. He was the guy who was known for being the encourager. And then somewhere in the story of Acts, which is the history of the church, Paul, Saul, becomes Paul and becomes an influencer for the kingdom. But get this, it didn't happen right away. Paul was very enthusiastic about his faith right away after the scales fell from his eyes and he began to see that Jesus Christ was the way and the truth and the life. Because there isn't better evidence in the Bible for the risen Lord than for you to take a hater of Jesus Christ himself and convert him because you, he saw him himself. That's evidence right there. If you want evidence for Easter and the resurrection, You take someone who radically opposed him and convert him because he saw the living Lord and he saw him and his enthusiasm was so high after seeing Jesus raised from the dead, believing that he was raised from the dead, that he thought he could take what he had and influence the kingdom for it. But he was kind of wrong at first. Here's why. Well, everybody thought it was a hoax. Everybody thought he was a hoax. It was a shell game. It was a sham. And why? Well, because believers knew he persecuted Christians, so they thought he was a fake, so they had a hard time accepting him. And then his old Pharisees brothers thought he was a sellout, so they rejected him. So Paul's kind of stuck here. So for about seven to 10 years, we don't know exactly how long, Paul goes missing. Why? Because he ain't got no friends. He ain't got no brothers in his life. So where does he go? He goes back home to Tarsus. And in that place, this is what I believe he was doing. This is opinion, but here's what I believe he was doing. 
Back in Tarsus, I think he was restudying the Bible through the lens of Jesus Amen. for about seven to 10 years, rereading it with the Messiah in the text because he was passionate as a Pharisee. He was passionate as a religious leader. He had zeal on the other side of the fence, but God was gonna use that zeal to convert him and guess what he needed in his life to bring him back into the church? He needed a brother. A brother who was going to get off the bench and get into the game and encourage him to do the same. And Paul, uh, Barnabas, Barnabas and his initiative are what changed the culture of the Roman world for Jesus Christ. And fellas, you need a man like that in your life. And you need to be that man, by the way. You need to take initiative for it. When I was about 14, 15 years old, I'd already been through my second dad. So I had bio dad, he was coming gone by the time I was two. Stepdad came into my life around age five, left about age 12 or so. And then all of a sudden one day, my grandfather came over to my mom's house. It was quite an interesting moment, predominantly because uh, my, my dad was a very hardcore atheist, very hardcore. And mom was an agnostic, former believer that turned agnostic, turned away from her faith. So we didn't allow Christians in our home. My dad didn't even allow me to use God's name as a curse word. That was interesting. Exactly the opposite reason Christian dads tell their sons not to use God's name as a curse word, which is just kind of fascinating to me. And my parents had all kinds of evidence backed for their position on why there was no such thing as a God. And then all of a sudden one day, after I'd been through my second dad, I think my mom kind of hit her wits end with having a boy in the house and didn't know what to do with me. My grandfather came over to the house. He came over to the house, knocked on the door, she actually let him in. It was such an unusual sight for me to see a Christian man in the house that I kind of sat down the hall and listened to the conversation in the kitchen that they had. What my grandfather did was this. He essentially begged my mother to allow me to move into his home. And I listened to my mother abdicate to him, and I did, I moved into his home. Because of that moment, and my grandfather taking initiative as a spiritual leader, and stepping into my life, my life is different today than it ever would have been. I came to discover a man of faith who believed in God, who taught me the ways of Jesus. And in one 30-second conversation one day in his old 1958 Chevy truck, he had this conversation with me that went just like this. He said, son, I know that your mom and dad say God is not real because Christians are hypocrites and the church is full of broken people. And he says, I want you to know that they're right. <laughs> Christians are hypocrites, and I am one. And the church is full of broken people, and I am one. But I don't put my faith in broken people or the church. I put my faith in a man whose life was broken for me, and his name is Jesus Christ. Man, that 30 seconds turned my world right side up. Helped me to see that all the logic that my parents had used against the faith was inappropriate and misappropriately placed 
and that I needed to see the person of Jesus Christ and who he was and investigate him. And I investigated him through my grandfather who lived that out on a daily basis because he took initiative. He took initiative. Fellas, you need these men in your life. And it begins by stopping the voice of self-disqualification and making a choice to do something about this, a proactive decision to find another brother. And this is not that difficult, seriously. This is not that difficult. It's no different from any other meeting you would ever do in life. If you take someone out for a steak dinner, they will listen to you. (laughs) Go find a man who's spiritually ahead of you in this life and buy him a steak dinner. And then ask him any question you want and he will answer it while he's engorging himself on a beautiful steak. I promise you, it works every single time. If you did that with me, I would answer any question that you had for me. But that's the way it works. We take proactive steps and initiative to find the brothers that we need in life. And I can tell you this, this room is full of wisdom. You know how I know it? Because this room is full of sinners redeemed by Jesus Christ who have a whole lot of wisdom about how to not do things. And that's where you get some of the best wisdom in life is by seeking out and taking initiative from those guys that walk down the road that you don't wanna walk down. So go get it from them. They might be better experts at understanding advice for it than even I am because they've walked the road and they will keep you from walking down the same road. So if you're a young man in this room, you need an older man in your life. If you're an older man in this room, you need a younger man in your life. And that is the way we need to be doing relationships together with other brothers. And here's the frustrating part about this, I can't make you do it, but I can shame and guilt you into doing it because if you don't do it. If you don't do it, you know where you're gonna be? You're gonna be in one of those groups. AA, NA, divorce recovery, celebrate recovery, financial recovery, something that has recovery after it, I promise you. And then you're gonna say the same thing that every other man has said before you. Had I had a brother in Bible in my life, I might have avoided all these problems. Just a little proactive help there. Point number three is this. Repeat point two. Please, look at that, he even asked please. Point two is this, take initiative and get a brother. I'm glad you wrote that down. There'll be a test later, James. Number three is this. Number three is this. Inside of these relationships, you've got to get into the Bible. You've got to get into the Bible. Amen. The Bible. That's it, the Bible. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you know it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man, note that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. I want you to think about that, the breath of God. Because when God breathes, things happen. The very breath of God holds truth in it itself. Just like when he breathed life into the nostrils of man and gave him life gave him life. 
When you think about that for a second, that is the word of God. And by the way, God's word is living and active. What does he mean by that? It's something more than just simply a book. It is something that's living and moving and has being. It's always truthful and it will always work every single time. It will never let you down. And guess what? God has been beating this into our minds since the beginning of time. Here's how. He did it through scribes. He had them very carefully, very carefully, take kosher animals, lambs often, sacrificed at the temple, then they would skin them, and then they would lay them out to take kosher ink from a kosher writing utensil and very carefully write down things that God had said. This was a meticulous act by ancient scribes. It took a hundred lambs to make one single Old Testament Torah, 100. Not killed lambs, sacrificed lambs at the altar of God. And then these scribes were meticulous on how they wrote this stuff down. If they made an error, they would destroy that piece of the scroll and burn it and start over again with a fresh new piece. And they would write meticulously till they got every word perfect. And then they would roll this thing up very delicately and break it out in synagogues to read in a very prescribed process, a very holy experience with the divine word. They took it so seriously that they didn't even write down the holy name of God. When you read the Torah, there's gaps in it for God's name. They, they wouldn't even disgrace the name the unspoken name of God that most didn't even know how to speak. And God was beating this into their mind about this living and active word until in John 1, it becomes life. That word, the Lamb of God, upon who was written the words of God became flesh in the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the living presence of the literal word of God. Right. He is everything that is holy and perfect and pristine. And he is the representation of everything that is perfect, living in the flesh, dwelling among us, walking with us. Why? Because men are slow and they need someone to walk with them and tell them that. We still don't read books, do we? So Jesus made himself flesh and walked with a group of men and showed them the way and spoke it to them. That holy word, that book we read is living and active and has an actual human effect on people. My grandfather, after I moved into his house, made me go to church. It was not a pleasant experience, by the way. Small little Bay Area country church maybe 30 people at a weekend service, and most of them had blue hair. And you know what I'm talking about. That fluorescent light shining on the back of their heads with that gray color just gave off this fluorescent blue lighting in the place that shone around the place. Yeah, there's a couple of guys who know literally what I'm talking about, right? 
And I sat there as probably one of the youngest people they've ever seen in their entire life, other than their own grandchildren. And one day I heard a pastor say this. He said, and it just grabbed my attention because it was, a very, it was in a very low place in my life as a young man, feeling very fatherless and alone. I felt like relationships were failing me, and I, I was lost for direction. And this pastor, at the very end of his sermon, said something that captured my attention. He said this, if you read Colossians 3 every day for a month, it will change your life forever. And what I heard was this. If you read Colossians 3 every day for a month, God will magically show up and make your life better. That's what I actually heard. So I went back to my grandparents' house and I stole my grandmother's Bible, which by the way, I still have today and I still feel bad about it every time I look at it. This old KGV with the zipper on the side, if you know what I'm talking about, and the, the red on the outside of the pages, and it's kind of pasty ink, and it, it just feels awful in your hand even when you open it. I just opened it the other day, looked at it again, reminded me of her, even the scent of it smells like her. And, and I did, I read Colossians 3 every day for a month. I woke up every day and I read it at least once. Sometimes I read it a couple of times, sometimes four or five times. And I had kind of the same experience I had when I was writing the devotionals. I, I got to about 25 and I got kind of excited about it. 26, got more excited. I got to day 30 and I was so excited. I was so excited because I thought God was gonna show up. And I read it and I closed it and guess what happened? Nothing, nothing happened. It's crazy, nothing happened. I closed it and guess what though? Something formed in me, a thought that wasn't true. It was this. Well, that pastor was wrong. God is not real. Really, that actually happened to me. Until about six months later. Six months later, I was probably at the lowest low I'd ever been in my entire life. And I woke up one day to look at myself in the mirror after a night of doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. And all of a sudden... I spoke to God very directly as I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, God, if you're real, I'm ready to give you a real chance. And guess what came back to me? Every single word of Colossians 3. Because guess what? I had memorized Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It just started coming back to me and I said it out loud. That's when I realized that there was something different about God's Word. God's Word is not an ordinary book. It is a spiritual book that has spiritual implications on your life. It is not a book of history with a bunch of fascinating things that happen and, and a few miracles and a story about a guy. It's not like that. It is a spiritual book with spiritual implications. It is unlike anything that's ever been written. Why? Because it's actually the Word of God. And when God breathes, things happen. And when you read it, it actually has an effect on you if you let it do that. So you gotta start reading God's word, but it even gets better when you read it in community. It has a multiplying, synergetic effect. Fellas, if you read the Bible with another man, if you read the Bible with your family, it will change you forever. Amen. I dare you. Those men in this room right now who are struggling, you're struggling in your marriage, read the Bible every day for a month. It will wreck you. And it will heal your marriage. If you are looking for deliverance from sin, 
Read the Bible every day for a month with another man. It will deliver you from sin. Because God's word does not come back void. If you are looking, if you are looking for your son and daughter to know Jesus Christ and they don't, read your stinking Bible with them every day for 30 days and they will make a decision of faith. It may not be right then, but it will happen because God's breath does things. God's word creates. When God created planet Earth, what did he do? He spoke it into existence. Don't think God's word doesn't do things. So fellas, why aren't you reading God's word? That's the guilt and shame. Why in the living world is that book sitting on your shelf and you haven't opened it? Why have you not let it have an effect on you? I love being able to write a daily devotional every day. You know why? It holds me accountable to writing a devotional every day and read God's word. It's a great twisted way to go about committing for the rest of my life to read it every day. But every day it affects me in a different, completely different way and I love it. And I want you to love that too. I don't want you to love the Bible, I want you to love the God of the Bible. Because all the Bible does is point us to the God of the Bible so you can find the redemption and the freedom that you need in your life. And guess what? It is better with brothers, here's why. Here's why it's better with brothers. Because sometimes with a brother, you have a brother who's got a job as a welder and someone who's got a job as a carpenter and someone who's got a job as a financial uh, expert and, and someone who's got a job as, as, as a plumber and someone who's got a job as a CEO and someone who's got a job as a tax collector and someone who's got a job as a teacher. And, and guess what? They all bring to bear their experiences as they read God's word, and it adds color and flavor and beauty to the experiences you read in the Bible. Because I'm gonna tell you right this, right now, if I've got a carpenter in the room and I'm reading the Bible with him, when we come to the story of the parable of the foundations, we come to the end of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about foundations, he understands what that means. And he can add perspective for me on why it's important to build my house in the right location and why I need a better foundation, and why I need to dig deeper in life, and why all that's critical to having a beautiful Ephesus that's ready for the storms of this life. And he could speak to that for me and add wisdom to it that I can gain from God's very breath. Fellas, if you are not reading the Bible, get into the Bible, and, and just shameless here, this is shameless. If you want to get in the Bible with me, I'd love to read the Bible with you. That's all I do on my daily devotionals. I do an Old Testament book, then a New Testament book, Old Testament, New Testament. Right now I'm in the book of John. You can read it every day with me. And guess what? By reading the Bible with me, you'll learn how to study the Bible. That's why I do it, is to actually train and disciple men on how to know God's word. So I would love it if you would join me for that study. Last point right here. Did you get point three, by the way? You got that written down? Okay, get in the Bible. All right. Number four is this. Use your gifts in community. Use your gifts in community. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. It reads this way. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Get this. Get this. This is what Paul says about spiritual gifts. But note this, by the way. Every person who is indwelled by the Spirit of God has a spiritual gift that God has given you. You may not know it at this moment. You probably haven't maybe explored it. Some of you guys know what that, are, that is, and it's very pronounced to you. But get this. Paul is very clear about this. Your gift is not for you. If you use your gift for you, that's where you get provoked, conceited, and envy one another. That means that my teaching gift is actually not for me. It shouldn't lead me to arrogance or pride or any kind of self-promotion in my life. It should only lead me to promotion of Jesus Christ for your benefit. But get this, this is where it gets really cool. Your gift's for me. And if you don't use your gift in community, then the body doesn't work appropriately. If you're sitting there tonight and you actually think that you don't need to be in a church and in a community with other believers, you are dead wrong. You are dead wrong about that. Bible citation, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 24. In fact, you read the whole chapter of verse 12 there on spiritual gifts. You're welcome. Your gifts are needed in God's church. And this isn't just some secret ploy to get you to contribute more to the body of Christ. It is actually the synergetic effect of the body working together. It's the greatest pro bono system of getting everything that you would ever need for your life inside of the community of faith. It's by other brothers working together. And I have seen this. I have seen this. And the glory of it is incredible. Here's how it happened to me just over the last couple of years. There's a couple of ways. I'll just tell you one. The little prayer button I told you about, guess what happened? Some guy reached out to me, knew that I was overwhelmed by all these prayers I was praying. He said, I want to lead your prayer effort. I said, great, you're in charge of it. Simple as that. This guy loves to pray. I said, great, you're in charge of it. I said, but here's the deal. I don't want you praying. I want us to find a team of people to pray. In one day, he found 50 people to pray. One day, found 50, put out a request. 50 people agreed to pray for anybody who comes to our website at any time. They pray 24 hours a day. A ministry that happens to people across the planet because one guy stepped up and did something because that's the synergetic effect of the body of Christ working together. And guess what? You have value, equal value in that community, regardless of what your gift might be. But if you don't use your gift in community, you are hemorrhaging the church. And don't come and expect the church just to serve your needs. That is selfish and self-righteous and sinful. You need to contribute your gift to the body because that's where your beautiful expression comes from. And then when you start to see that beautiful expression of it, give it freely to people so they can enjoy the blessing of it. And I want you to know that because, fellas, I get to experience that every single day. The free expression of my gifts that God is using for the benefit of the body, I know are a blessing to you but I wanna experience your gifts, and the men around you wanna experience those too. Because when the body joins together, it's powerful. And Paul knew that. He knew that the church in Corinth was hemorrhaging 
because the gifts weren't being used appropriately and he had seen the glory of God working through men and women in the church that can be the same experience that you had. Here's how I got into teaching. Crazy story. First year of college, show up. I was late showing up. I was late registering, and so I got all the worst classes. I had to pick one last class, and it had to be a communications class. And I had two choices, public speaking or acting. And I wasn't gonna do the other. So I chose the speaking class, and it happened to be by this professor named Dr. Patterson, and he had written a couple of books, and I was like, okay, big showboat. His books were the textbooks for the class, so I was like, okay, whatever. I signed up for the class and came to find out he was kind of quite the personality. He still teaches, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I signed up for the class, and I realized there were only eight kids in the class, and here's how class worked. You had to give five five-minute talks and then the class evaluated you out loud. Sounds like a proctology exam, actually. You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, wait a second. That's what it's like? So in the very first class, we kind of drew lots and straws for who was going to go first, and I won <laughs> at the prize for going first. So anyway, you know, he tells us, here's the syllabus, here's what we're going to talk on in the first round. The first round was something like, what did you do last summer? All right? So I prepared a five-minute talk, used his outline, used his methodology, got up and gave it, got evaluated, which felt way fun. As soon as I got done, he said, Mr. Miller, I need to speak to you after class. That was the first week of class, all right? So he says, I want to speak to you after class. So I thought I was in trouble. I really did. I thought I was in trouble. So everybody leaves class. I kind of wait for him to call me up to the front, of the front desk, and he calls me up there, and he says, Mr. Miller, I realized that this last week, you attend the church I attend. I had been to school for one week. I went to one church for one hour, and he happened to see me there, all right? <laughs> and then he turns to me and he says, Mr. Miller, I'm gonna be gone next week. I teach a class at church. Would you teach my class for me? <laughs> and, <laughs> And because I realized I wasn't in trouble, I said, sure. <laughs> and then next he says to me, freshman boy, he says, oh, by the way, it's 100 juniors and seniors in college, and we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. I had been a Christian like three months. I didn't even know there was a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And I went to find it, and I read it, and found out everything in it was meaningless. <laughs> and I, I literally thought to myself, if everything's meaningless in it, why am I teaching on this subject matter? But I went, because I was so honored to be asked, I went to the library, and I studied this book for over a week, about a week, and I got all prepared for it, and I actually, I was from California, so you know, I owe nothing but shorts and 
open-toed shoes. So I went to the Goodwill and I got a nice dress shirt and some slacks and some shoes that didn't fit me very well. And I got all ready for this class that I was gonna teach at church and I had my Bible and I had some notes. I was all ready to go. And I walk into this class kind of early, about 15 minutes early and there's no one in there. There's just some black chairs and, and, and a stand up front and, and I'm really nervous. And all of a sudden the kids start to filter in and they're loud and they're excited and they're exuberant, and man, they're juniors and seniors, and I'm just this lowly freshman, and I really start to get nervous. I'm starting to perspire and sweat, and I'm not sure how this is gonna go. And, and sure enough, some kid comes over to me, and he says, I'm kind of the MC." and he says, I got a couple of announcements. Dr. Patterson's excited to have you. I know he's out of town, but I'll just do these, and then you're up. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, and sure enough, his announcement took like 15 seconds, and I was up. And I got up out of my chair and I kind of nervously made my way to the stand. I put my stuff on the music stand, kind of laid it out. And as soon as I did, Dr. Patterson walked into the back of the room. <laughs> Which is what you call a Christian liar, by the way. <laughs> and he looks at me and he smiles. And then he does this swagger thing where he points at me. And then he sits down in the very back and there's three empty chairs, and he sits in the middle one, throws his arms back like this, crosses his legs, and just kind of nods his head. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. The most I've ever spoke in my life is five minutes. I've done it one time, it was in his class, and now I'm up for my final exam, right? But I got up there, and the first few minutes, it was kind of sweaty and awkward, and I kind of went through it, and I can't even remember what I said, honestly. I wish I'd still had those notes. But I got done, and I felt like I had ran a marathon and I sat back down exhausted in that chair, and kids start to filter out of the class, and a, and a short line formed of young men that wanted to speak with me. First one came up to me and he said this, out loud, so everybody could hear, that was still left. He said, man, do you do that very often? <laughs> I said, no, not really. I kind of smiled. And he said, well, you should do it more often. And Dr. Patterson, heard the whole thing, smiled, and the next week, I had a job at that church. The next week. That was 29 years ago, and I've been working in full-time ministry ever since. But very simply, that man saw a gift in me that he knew it instantly. And he pulled it out of me, and he encouraged me to step into it. And guess what? That is exactly what I'm trying to do with you right now. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Use your gift. Even if you're confused about it, nervous about it, intimidated by it, or unsure of what it is, when you use it, God might change the trajectory of the rest of your life. But guess what? You need a brother in your life to speak that to you sometimes. I give you four things tonight that I pray will bless you. But I want you to hear this. You don't find those things if you don't have a brother in your life. You have to stop doing this life alone, autonomous from all these resources and all these blessings. But if you take me up on this, I promise God might change the course of the rest of your life. Let me pray for you, and then we'll dismiss.
great and mighty and holy triune God, the one who is present in this room right now. God, as your spirit moves across this place, speaking in a way that I cannot speak to the souls of each one of these individual men, I pray that they will feel the weight of a conviction that you want them to act on right now, a conviction that is gonna cause a change in the rest of their life. God, I pray that you will speak, you will bring about initiative, that you will cause a change, that you will guide them to their gifts in hopes of resurrecting a new time in their life. God, I'm gonna pray right now also that you would lead them to brothers. I'm gonna pray that you trouble their mind about a name of someone either they need to be pouring into or need to be poured into by. Someone that they need to mentor or someone they need to be mentored by. Someone they need to disciple or be discipled by. I wanna pray that you trouble their mind to the point that it irritates them if they don't act on it. I wanna pray that you give them that name and that they will feel compelled to text, call, email, set up a meeting and buy a steak dinner for that guy. God, to the point that it would bother them if they don't do something about it and that you would overwhelm them with a sense of guilt that causes and spurs them into positive, proactive action. Because God, we need men that are less reactive today and more holy, not by our proaction, but by your proaction and our faithfulness to that, by us stepping into that path and being faithful to what you did. So God, I pray over this moment, this commitment that we've made, and God, may we act on it even tonight in the mighty name of the one who discipled us all, Jesus, amen.